All right, so this week we are diving back into Matthew. We are continuing our journey throughout the entire Gospel of Matthew. Now, if you recall, before Lent, we finished off the recorded events in this Gospel of childhood Jesus. We talked about Jesus' genealogy, his birth, the visit of the Magi, the family's time as refugees in Egypt, and the, their subsequent return to Nazareth. Now, it's at this point in the story that our narrative jumps ahead a few decades. We pick things up right at the cusp of Jesus beginning his ministry. But before this can happen, there is one more key player that needs to be introduced. And that person is Jesus's cousin, John the Baptist. So I am going to start reading in chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not even worthy to carry. I will he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn, burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So, John the Baptist. For such an important figure, we really know relatively little about John. There's a ton of speculation. So, some examples. Uh, some people believe that because of his description and of his appearance and physical diet, that he was a Nazarite. Now, a Nazarite is someone who has taken a special kind of oath before God and has vowed to live following a certain set of rules. Uh, these rules can be found in numbers where they describe the varying conditions of the Nazaritic vow. Perhaps maybe the most famous Nazarite is the Old Testament Samson, judge Samson. Samson was a Nazarite. Others speculate that John was a member of the first century Jewish separatist group known as the Essenes. Much of the language and specific phrases that John uses are also found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it is most commonly thought that the Essenes were the ones responsible for authoring the Dead Sea Scrolls. So there's some that say maybe John was part of that community. But all of that aside, all that we really know about John is that he lived and preached out in the Jordan wilderness, and he preached a message of repentance. 
sim in a similar vein, in a similar style to some of those Old Testament prophets. And more specifically, John would probably be classified as a doom prophet because he peached repent or else something bad is going to happen. You know, that kind of doom oracle. We know that he baptized people in the Jordan River and he seemed to have gained quite a following as he had people from all over the area coming out to see him. So with that kind of background, I want to focus on a specific section here. And that section is John's interactions with the Sadducees and the Pharisees. So for a quick reminder, the Sadducees were a religious sect at the time. They were the remnants of the former priest kings of Jerusalem. During that brief time of independence between Alexander the Great and Rome, the what are called the Hasmoneans ruled, they were the kings, they kind of ruled over Jerusalem and the surrounding area. Now, the Sadducees, their descendants, were members of the wealthy aristocratic class. And more often than not, they sided with Rome because they kind of wanted to keep things the way they were. The situation, the political landscape was tending to favor them. They had quite a bit of sway, so they didn't want to do anything to upset that balance. So they tended to side with Rome. Now the Pharisees, on the other hand, were a separatist group that formed to combat the religious and political corruption they saw in the Sadducees. So this group, the Pharisees, thought that the best way to receive God's promised blessing was to purify Israel that Israel had to be ready to receive this blessing. As a result, they held extremely tightly to the law and expected very strict observance to it. Now, these two groups really did not get along all that well or do a lot together. I mean, one group was founded and started wholly because they thought the other group was corrupt. So I think it is really interesting here that we see them coming together, coming out to see what John is up to. Now, verse 7, the one that introduces them into the story, doesn't tell us why these two groups are there. Are they there to listen and be baptized? That could potentially fit in with uh, what the Pharisees did. You know, this was a group that was always trying to appear holy, that was always trying to appear pure. Or are they there to see what all the fuss is about? You know, John is starting to gain a big following, and so maybe they're worried that John's following might get too big, and that might garner the attention of Rome and upset the balance of things. So whatever the reason, they come out there, John sees them, and calls them out. Calls them, you brood of vipers. Now, this is such a good phrase, right? It's a good phrase. And in fact, this is a, a phrase that Jesus would later call these same groups later in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, snakes have a long history of fear and enmity with the people. Just think back to some of the Old Testament stories you have. It's obviously a serpent in the Garden of Eden, at least the ultimate fall of humanity. We had just a few stories throughout the Old Testament as well. Think of the story of Moses where he has you know, the, the brass serpent where snakes have come to attack the people and they have to look at the brass serpent to be healed. There's all sorts of stories about you know, snakes not having a great relationship with the people. So by John calling these groups brood of vipers, he's really 
kind of indicating that the enemy is already among us. That the poison that he sees as ruining Israel is coming from within. That venomous viper poison is coming from within. You, you could maybe say it's a way of him saying that the call is already coming from inside the house. They're already inside. So John starts with this notion and then goes on to use some agricultural metaphors to speak of a coming judgment. The axe is at hand. Trees that do not bear good fruit will be cut down and burned. Now this is pretty common prophetic language. The majority of the people decided this was a partially agrarian society, so they would have understood these metaphors. They would have been part of their everyday ethos and everyday life. But then John goes on to hone things in a little bit more, to give a little bit more detail. He talks about someone coming after him who will baptize with fire. Now this coming person will come in and clear their threshing floor. This person will hold a winnowing fork at the ready to separate that which is to be burned from that which is to be saved. Now, this is a continuation of this agricultural metaphor, and one we've even talked about before. It's one you see a lot in the Bible. And it's the idea that when someone is harvesting, you have to take separate the good, edible, usable food from the just stuff you can't eat and that's basically useless. Those two things have to be separated. And oftentimes that is done through what is called a winnowing fork. And you know, it's a big fork and you kind of throw the stuff up in the air and the, the chaff, the bad part, would, would either blow away or kind of fall off to the ground over here. You would take that and burn it. The good stuff you would take, save, process, do, do whatever you were going to do with it. Make your bread, make whatever. So that's the metaphor we have set up. There is a coming person who is going to separate the good, useful from the stuff that's bad, the stuff that's unusable. Now, we, reading this, obviously know he's talking about Jesus. And it's interesting that he's talking about a side of Jesus that we don't often talk about. The judgment side. For the most part, we tend to focus on the loving side of Jesus, right? The side that came, died for our sins so that we could have life with God. The side that made it so we can have eternal fellowship with God. I mean, we're coming off of Easter. That is the kind of prime, height, happy side. The, the side that makes us excited, right? But the, the judgment side is also there. Jesus' death and resurrection ultimately made him the master of death and the master over sin. So now it's Jesus who stands between us and that life of eternal life stands between us and death. But then the question becomes, well, what determines who gets this gift, who gets salvation, and who doesn't? Well, luckily for us, this section provides an awesome illustration of this point. Look again at verse 9. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones... God can raise up children for Abraham. All right. So here, John is heading off the idea that we can gain salvation simply because of who we are. 
So there was a common appeal to both the Sadducees and the Pharisees that God's blessing would come to them simply because they were children of Abraham. That God's promise to bless the descendants of Abraham, God had promised that. And they were those descendants. So that really the blessing was always going to be coming to them. Simply because of who they were. It was their lineage that was going to warrant God's favor. But God is saying, John is saying, well, hold on, not, not so fast. If God wanted to, even these stones could become children of Abraham. So would these stones now have the same blessing? Now, John is not talking about God making rock monsters or golems. Although that would make this story way better if a giant rock monster just popped up. But that's not what's happening here. John is actually hidden on something very specific. Now, humor me for a second. We're going to need to take a slight detour before we bring everything back. We're going to need a quick history lesson. So, children of Israel, back in the Old Testament, they are enslaved in Egypt, right? God frees the people. Moses leads them out of Egypt through the Reed Sea. The waters part. They walk through on dry ground. Everyone knows that story, right? The waters come back down. The armies of Pharaoh, they're crushed under the water, all that. Then a number of years pass where they're wandering around the wilderness. During this time, they get the law, they make the ark, all sorts of good things happen. And some bad things too, but all sorts of things happen. Now, eventually, the people come to the borders of the promised land. This entire journey has been about bringing the people into the land that God promised them. And they are right there. They're at the doorstep. Joshua chapter 3 tells how Joshua, now the leader of the people, brings the people into the land through the Jordan River. We're told the people walk through the river on dry ground. The same way that Moses led the people through the water at the beginning of their journey. So it creates this really nice bookend. Moses leads the people out of slavery through the water. And now Joshua is leading the people into their full freedom through the water. Creates a cool bookend. And this act, the act of Joshua leading the people into the land through the Jordan River, is really the end of this long process. And now they are fully in the land. So, as such, Joshua wants to commemorate this event, commemorate this occasion. So Joshua 4 tells us how God commands the people to take 12 stones, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Of Israel. So the people do, they take these stones, they put them in the middle of the Jordan River where they crossed on dry land. The stones go there, the water falls back down, leaving these 12 stones to lie at the bottom of the river. Joshua tells the people that these stones will act as a monument to the time and location where they entered the land. A monument to the fulfillment of God's promise to them. And a monument to the people of Israel themselves. These stones are to remind them that they are God's people. Now, where is John doing his baptizing? In the Jordan River. 
Now, this is not said in the text anywhere, but tradition holds that John is baptizing in the very same place at the river where the people crossed into the land. So when John says, these stones, it is very possible, and I would argue likely, that he is referring to the 12 stones of Joshua 4. He is referring to the stones that mark the very place where the promise of God to Abraham occurred. The place where that promise was fulfilled. The place where they entered into the land. And he is saying that these very stones, the stones that act as a memorial to the people of Israel, could just as easily themselves had been the children of Israel, the people of Israel. At the very spot where the people entered into the promised land is the place where, as we'll see next week, Jesus enters into his ministry, the ministry that promises to bring this promise to everyone. So even though John speaks of coming judgment and that Jesus will be the one burning this chaff, the one separating what is to be saved from what is to be burned, he's also couching this, this prophecy, this doom oracle, in a lot of hope. The hope that the blessing of Jesus does not come down to specifically who you are, who your family is really anything you have done because we can do nothing to earn this salvation. The rocks at the bottom of the Jordan River have just as good of chance as earning salvation as we do. That's not right, the rocks. The hope that John speaks of is the hope that we celebrated last week on Easter morning. That resurrection hope, the hope of salvation, that free, gracious gift of salvation. That is why John is calling out the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Because these individuals think that they can earn God's blessing through their own self-righteousness, through their own long history, that somehow they have earned God's salvation because of who they are, because of where they come from. They can't, and neither can we. John's message might seem like a downer at first. There is a lot of doom language. There is a lot of burning fire imagery going on there. But just like those 12 stones at the bottom of the Jordan reminded the people of Israel of God's fulfilled promise, let them remind you of Jesus's promise. Jesus' promise as summed up in John chapter 1. All who receive him, to those who believe his fame, he gave the right to become children of God. All we have to do is believe. There's nothing we can do to earn it. It doesn't matter what we've come from, who our family is, any of that. Because all of that would fail. All of that would fall short of achieving the gift of salvation. It is a gift freely given. And I think that should be freeing for us to realize we don't have to earn this. We can't earn this. It's freely given. And so that is the forerunner that John is giving here. That is the stage John is setting 
for the coming Jesus, for his cousin, the work of his cousin. John is setting it up as it's going to be for everyone. It's going to blow out the circle of who this promise is for. It's going to be a promise for everyone. And to me, that is immensely exciting and immensely hopeful. Join me as we pray. Dear Lord, we, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for this time we have to gather as a River Tree family. And we thank you for this gift that you've given us. This gift that we celebrated last week on Easter morning. And this gift that I hope we can celebrate every morning of the year. This free, amazing gift of eternal life, of eternal fellowship, eternal blessing with you. And we just thank you, Lord, that it is a freely given gift. It's not something we have to earn. It's not something we have to work toward. Because if that were the case, none of us could achieve it. And so we just humbly thank you that is it is a gift freely given purely out of the goodness of your heart lord and we just ask that as we depart from here as we go our separate ways lord that you could go with us you would follow us you would strengthen us and you would comfort us we ask all this in your precious name amen